Another story, if you don't mind. Many stories start with the phrase, once upon a time. But those four short words do not apply here. This, what we are about to describe, happened before time, for our understanding of it anyway. Do us this one favor, close your eyes, let that dark surround you and fill your senses. Let it staunch your nose and shutter your ears. Sink into it. Now, before you, there is green. For as far as you can see, the brilliant vegetation extends farther and higher than you can believe each leaf as unique as a snowflake. The gentle breeze trembles, scattering stray drops of dew. Maybe later, there will be calls and cause of hunger or lust or fear. Maybe later, there will be the sound of terrible footprints, setting each fiber to shivering. But not now. Now, there's only this good green and this now seems eternal. Until, quite suddenly, it is not. You feel it before you see it. A slight pressure in your eardrums. A flicker of pain in your gut. Your hand reaches towards your stomach. And that is when you notice that the hairs on your arms is all upright and your fingers, your fingers are all a trembling. What is happening to you? And that, at last, is when you see it. The violation carving itself into being. You can feel the air particles around you screaming as the forced breach rips them apart. The force of the expulsion blows you backwards, covers you with dirt and ash. You rise, moving slowly, there, on the ground, you see it. It is thin and covered in slime, and it is alive. This thing may be newly born, but the eyes that snap open are old, so old, and they burn red. Gnawing on its coating, the creature crawls off into the green, vegetation shrinking away as it passes. And then it is gone out into the world, out to feed. Its journey will be long and winding. It has no conception that now, already, it is on a course that leads inexorably towards a boy named Isaac, a boy who will not be born for millions of years. A boy whose species does not even exist yet. Already the path is set. Already all roads lead to the city beneath the black sun. Don't talk, just listen. Sun there.
there is no hope, only mystery, wonder, and danger. Black Sun Dispatches on the Cinefunks Podcast Network. She is not screaming, she is sobbing. When she is not sobbing, she is retching. When her body has nothing more to give up, she rocks in her seat on the couch, a sickly moan emitting from her mouth which hangs ajar unnoticed like a screen door, loose on its hinge. The husband is a little better. She grieves, he talks. Talks theories, talks strategies, says empty word after empty word, as if he hopes that if he strings enough of that emptiness together, it will form something. Something tangible. Something whole. Head Order Officer Mustafa lets him talk. Not because he's anything useful to say. God, no. No. Mustafa lets the husband talk because both men know that this family will never be whole again. The absence hangs like a weight. Mustafa has heard of bands that, when one of their members passes away, they do not replace them immediately, but instead allow the missing notes to echo off the concert halls and stadium walls. Her name was Amanda Lee. Is, Mustafa reminds himself. There is no reason yet to assume the past tense. But there is, he knows, plenty of reasons. When they found the body of the young woman wearing bloodstained clothing, who matched the description given by the first mother to lose a child, it had been easy to view the incident as an isolated disaster. A tragedy, but one that could be roped off like a freak at the county fair. It could be studied, learned from, agonized over, horrified by, pitied, forgotten. Since the girl matched no records of any residence in the Gray's Keep, there was a simple solution, ready to go. One of the raving, roving rabble outside the keep had somehow found their way inside, committed an atrocity, then dropped dead from whatever new disease plagued those wretched lost outside the safe confines of the Man McRae's good graces. It was easy. It was simple. Mustafa did not trust it at all. And now, here he was. Another child missing by a culprit who did not at all resemble the descriptions given of the deceased. The first victim could not have been more clear. The abductor was a woman. Her face had been shrouded in a hood, and her voice had been odd, yes, but about her femininity there could be no doubt. Yet the mother here is positive it had been a man, a man that broke into her home and stole her child away. He too had his face obscured. He too spoke in a voice that was somehow not a voice like any the woman had ever heard before. And the eyes. Both women were very clear about the eyes, 
how they glowed like a pair of setting suns, violent yet beautiful for their violence. The mother begins the hiccup between her moans. The humor of it makes Mustafa wish to throw up. Uh, sir? One of his aides taps him on the shoulder. What? He asks. There's a... There's a guy outside yelling about how he knows what's going on with all the, uh... With all the stuff that's, you know, going on. Mustafa sighs. So you're telling me a city full of lunatics has sprouted a new one? Toss him in a cell until whatever ride he's on runs out. The aide shifts, uncomfortable. The uniform, which Mustafa had insisted all his support staff wear, is overlarge and clearly itchy. The thing is, sir, is uh, he, he knows things, things we were real sure not to let anyone know about. Mustafa pauses. What kind of things? Well, the aide leans in, whispering now. He knows about how the mothers gave permission. And, and about the eyes, sir. Sir? The last question drifts unnoticed. Mustafa is gone, flying down the staircase with only his hands on the guardrails keeping him steady. He bursts out the front door of the complex and sees at once the middle-aged man straining against Mustafa's men. The order officer crosses to him in quick, lunging steps. Who are you, Isaac? What is it? A demon. Where is it? I don't know, but I can't find it. Mustafa studies the other man. What will you do when you do find it? Isaac's eyes are like smooth brown stones. I will chop its head off, he says and then I will burn its fucking remains. Mustafa nods. Okay, let him in. thing was, the first time it had tasted the flesh of men, it had not cared for the taste or the texture. It had watched the bawling apes for some time, noting, with only intermittent interest, how these beings survived and even thrived while their world boiled and froze, giving and taking life in equal measure. There had been others of its kind, even then. Wavelengths observing each other across the blasted ether. The first time it killed a human, it simply turned off the ape's brain. It took no effort, wasted no time. The first time it ate, it used its own teeth. The taste was awful, 
and it retreated. But then the ape's mate appeared and began to shriek and wail. When it took over the mate's mind, it was only to shut the hairy thing up. Only, only once it was inside, it noted that the simian's mind was intriguingly complex beneath the base instincts and senses. Senses that, even now, reported the smell of fresh meat. The ape's mind recoiled at this thought, which only intrigued it more. It lowered the ape's head, took the mate's meat in its mouth, and bit, tore, chewed. The meat was delicious. The silent screams of its host were even more so. Many experiments followed, all yielded some kind of interesting return. It forgot these origins as it forgot many things, but it never forgot that taste. No matter the skull it inhabited, always the memory of that taste watered its various tongues. Perhaps that was what drew it to the crater where the city had been. Perhaps it was this perfume of trauma and terror that beckoned it through the veils between worlds. It raised stolen eyes to regard the black sun and the gray slate sky. However it came to be here, it does not care. It had wandered the world for all of time, never sure what it was looking for, but now it knew. Here, this paradise. It takes a long, deep inhalation of the approaching night air. It is hungry once more. Sweat collects in the nape of Monica LeGru's neck until finally it spills in a straight drop down her spine, trailing like a lover's cold finger. She has been promised that she will be safe. She has been promised that her baby will never be in danger. These things were easier to believe in well-lighted rooms filled with other people. Now she is alone. Now she's in the dark, with only the rising and falling red light of the monitor throwing the dark of her apartment into sporadic relief. It's funny. Just the other day she was complaining to her sister that her apartment was too small. Now it seems cavernous, with deep canyons of darkness that seem to throb against their own dimensions. Even as she thinks about them, the dark pools begin to grow. Monica shuts her eyes, trying to will away her panic. Officer Mustafa gave her pills, 
said they would calm her nerves. He had said more, but Monica was distracted by the other man, tall and silent with eyes like smooth brown stones. Are you sure? She had asked. Yes, Isaac said. It will come for you tonight. But we'll stop it, Mustafa swore. We're going to stop it. Monica had nodded, but she could not help noting that the certainty in Isaac's voice was missing from Mustafa's. And here she is, alone in the dark, with nothing but the absent promise of eventual rescue between her and a creature out of time that was supposed to appear and ask if it could take her baby, her sweet Desmond, asleep in the next room. If she said no, this thing would return again and again. It would pester her night after night, and eventually it would pursue her into the living, livid day. All it would take was one slip-up, one muttered word or sigh, and that would be enough. Monica had often wondered if it had been a mistake to bring Desmond into this world. Only after he had entered it, only after he had gurgled and giggled while she bathed him, only after he had begun to clap and smile when he saw her enter a room, only then had she allowed herself to believe that life in ruins are still worth leading, sharing, continuing. The silence of the apartment began to set her on edge. The opposite of noise is not quiet, for even within quiet there are stirrings and shadings. No, my friends, the opposite of noise is stillness, when even the dust in the air seems to pause, unsure of which way to spin. Lying on the couch, it seems to Monica that the entire apartment is locked in place in time. She has a sudden, insane certainty that if she looked at her watch, then sat still for as many hours as she could handle, when she looked at the watch again, it would show no time had passed. She is sure of it. She would drown in the thickness of now, clawing at her throat that she might let air in and the throbbing red of the monitor lends every shadow weight and shape, and every time she blinks, she sees a spectral form step closer, and she cannot stand it. God, she cannot stand it. It would be a relief if it would appear, if only to end this now and let it be then. The monitor's light fades. When it rises again, there is a new specter in the apartment with her. Monica waits for this too to fade. It does not fade. It steps closer. Over its face, it wears a hood. But she can still make out the inhuman face below. And she can still make out the glow of those red, red eyes.
It could not remember all the places it had been. It could not remember all the faces and forms it had worn. It could not recall the great lands in which it had roamed before coming to this land of fear and flesh. It could not even remember how the rules that governed its actions and huntings had come to be. Memory had seemed an unnecessary burden. But as it crawls through the streets of the Man McGray's Keep, it finds itself wishing that it had held on to more. Glass cracks and splinters underneath, tearing at its host's clothes and skin. The pain is dull, muted by the deeper and richer agony of the stump where its left knee had been. A crowd has begun to form, late night wanderers and revelers drawn by the crash and the thud. They gape and gop, murmuring in horror at the sight of its wounds and at its hideous, twisted face. It snarls, swipes, setting off a chorus of yipes and squeaks. It grins at this, feeling hot blood slide between its teeth. Out of the way, a voice says. If Isaac's voice hadn't been enough to impress his purpose upon the crowd, the bloody machete he held did the trick. And then the crowd is parted, and there is Isaac, and there is his machete. Monster and man stare one another down in the center of an onlooking circle. It shakes its head. I've been alive forever, it moans, forever, and I only just now started to get it right. What the fuck do you call that? Isaac hefts the machete. Being a human is all he replies. At that, it opens its mouth to say something more, but the machete is already incoming. The first blow takes the head most of the way off, but a slim tether of meat ties head and torso together still. The head dangles upside down, upturned face catching a good deal of the arterial spray. It sees Isaac readying a second blow. For one instant, it locks eyes with its killer. Isaac hesitates. One red eye winks. Isaac swings. Again and again and again. And when at last he can swing no more, he produces a box of matches. And though he is soaked through, he still manages to light one. When nothing is left beyond white ash, Isaac drops to his knees and begins to weep. Now, why would he do that? The man McGray asked. Betsy Overby shrugged. 
Apparently it was a personal matter. The man McRae nodded. He knew a thing or two about vendettas. And where is he now? Detention. The story we have circulating is that a group of outsiders broke in, all carrying the same plague, uh, a kind of rabies. It's sloppy, but it's getting the job done. Good, good. And everyone is cooperating? Marka Danvers was all too happy to accept her new quarters as recompense for keeping quiet. The baby slept through the whole incident, as a matter of fact. Mustafa is less happy. Will he be a problem? Even a month ago, and yes, probably. But now there's the matter of his house guest. Ah, the boy. Best hand ever been dealt, sir. The man McRae touched the absence of his face, stroking scarred tissue. Betsy recognized this as a sign that the man was deep in thought. I'm going to visit my daughter, he said abruptly. I'll trust you to see the matter resolved. I will, sir, Betsy said, flushing with unwanted but undeniable pride. But, sir? The man McRae hesitated at his door. Why don't we just kill him? Which one? Betsy laughed. Any of them, I suppose. We could kill them all and start fresh. I am not a murderer, Miss Overby. I am a strategist. And our game is only just begun. The manic ray smiled, his lipless smile, and vanished into his chambers. Hey everybody, sorry for delaying getting this episode up, but hopefully uh, now that it is up, you listened to it and enjoyed it. Uh, my name is Brent Foley, and I write, produce, and perform Black Sun Dispatches as part of the Cinepunks Podcast Network. Black Sun Dispatches is only one of many great shows offered by the Cinepunks Network, uh, including Cinepunks, Loud Fast Philly, Horror Business, The Mandate, or our new show, Wine and Cheese. That's wine, W-H-I-N-E, and cheese, like, like, like cheese. <laughs> Uh, along with the podcast, the Cinepunks website has tons of great writing, uh, which you should absolutely check out, especially with Halloween coming up. Uh, we're going to have cool stuff pretty much every single day from podcast to writing, so get in on that. Cinepunks and its programming is sponsored by Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations, which you can reach at xlvacx.com. That's Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations at xlvacx.com. I actually just got a bunch of clothing from them, uh, and it's awesome. Fits great, feels super comfortable. Uh, it's actually pretty warm now that the the days are getting colder. So, yeah, pretty much just great all around. <laughs> you can be a Cinepunk sponsor yourself by supporting our Patreon, which you can find on the Cinepunks website. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. 
Uh, it's a huge, huge help to get the word out. So please, like I said, spread the word, uh, rate the show, but only, only you know, people who like it. If you don't like it, just, you know, cut your hands off. Well, don't actually cut your hands off, but, you know, crush your hands. Do anything to stop you from saying bad things about my show. I work hard on this, guys. A little appreciation. I'm kidding. Not really. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Black Sun Dispatch's logo is designed by Jennifer Rogers, and the music uh, is Winter by E.L. Heath. You can follow me on Twitter at the true brand F, and you can follow the show on Twitter at Black Sun Show for all kinds of new updates for upcoming episodes. Uh, our next episode will most likely be dropping, hopefully, on October 9th, and that episode is entitled Hauntings. So look forward to that. Uh, like I said, hopefully you guys enjoyed this week's show. It was a bitch to get made <laughs> and released. Uh, so hopefully you've enjoyed this little two-parter and we can all, all to collectively move on to other things. Uh, I'm looking forward to it and I hope you are too. Thanks everybody. Have a good one. Bye.